You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Maxine Meifeng Chung. Maxine is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, clinical supervisor, and writer with over 15 years of clinical experience. She lectures on gender and sexuality, trauma, and attachment theory at the Bowlby Center, and was presented with the Jafar Karim Award for her work supporting people from ethnic minorities experiencing isolation and mental health problems. What Women Want is her first work of nonfiction and is out now and available in your local bookshop. When we spoke, Maxine and I discussed what might have happened if she had followed her heart and studied English literature at university, as opposed to following a path which she said allowed her to stay a bit more hidden. Along the way, we talked about the unrealistic and damaging pressure society puts on mothers, why we tend to want people to be just one thing, and how, in her words, communities can put the fire out on shame. In her unlived life, Maxine also makes some very savvy property decisions. Hi, Maxine. Hi, Marianne. So nice to have you here. Thanks for joining me on My Unlived Life. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm super excited to get to talk to you um, for many reasons, but in large part because your book, What Women Want, um, is all about desire and how we get what we want, how we don't get what we want, what gets in our way. And my feeling with unlived lives is that they represent a desire. They represent want, so a kind of wish of your former self or even a part of yourself that we don't always make space for, right? You sort of, you choose a path and you kind of shut something down, very understandably. So we're going to explore one such um, desire for you today. But before we do, I wondered if you could just say a little something about the book and why you wanted to write it. Sure. Well, first of all, it's so nice to be on the other side of the room because I'm usually the one asking (laughs) or talking about the unlived life, you know, with my patients. So actually to be on the other side um, is is really fascinating. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, But the book, What Women Want, um, it's a collection of seven stories with seven of my patients, a collaboration um, over the last 15 years that, um, that inquires into kind of intersectional clients where we look at desire and what is prohibiting desire, what are the fears, some of the trauma, some of the the emotional inheritance that comes along in therapy that prohibits desire. And so it's a quest to kind of empower ourselves to start talking about what women want. It's a kind of call to arms for empowerment. I love that. And I love your use right at the start there of the word collaboration. And that's what you really are struck by in reading your book is the extent to which it feels like your sessions with these parents 
not parents, with these that was Freudian, um, with these <laughs> patients is a collaboration. And it's so different to our standard sense of the of the silent analyst sitting behind the chair saying nothing. Um, you're really in there with your patients. It yeah. feels. That felt really important. You know, I, I consider myself one of the women. So that, that, you know, there are eight of us in there. You know, I wanted to level out the power and for there to be an overarching um, uh, look at my own desire as the therapist as well, you know, because I also come from a place, uh, quite a cocktail of oppression in my childhood that prohibited desire. So I wanted to get in there with the women. I wasn't coming in as an expert. I was coming in as a collaborator. And that felt really important for the work. Um, <clears throat> and I work in a kind of more relational way. It's, it's psychoanalytic, but it's um, very much in the room where you're sharing feelings and working together um, to empower that desire. So I'm really pleased that it comes across that, that, that level of collaboration. It really, really does. And that phrase, a cocktail of oppression, is really extraordinary. And I think when we perhaps start to talk about your your younger mm -hmm. life, maybe you can say more about that. In which case, shall we, I think we should just get right in there. So before we say exactly what your path is, can you just give a little context, sort of where you grew up, um, mm -hmm. where you were around the time um, that your paths diverged uh, before we start talking about it? Oh, so I guess that the detour that I'm going to take or the other path that I'm going to take is maybe around my 18th year. But up until then, I was growing up in a, in, in a small town in Lincolnshire in a predominantly white working class community. Um, I was the daughter, the first daughter and the second child of my mother and father. My father came over from Hong Kong in the, in the late 1960s. He was a Chinese immigrant from Hong Kong. And he and my mother met in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, I was born in 73, followed by, um, I followed two brothers. And uh, we grew up um, in a challenging community. We were the only brown folk on our council estate, which um, caused some difficulties. Um, and it was also quite a challenging home to grow up in. Um, as I mentioned, the, the level of cocktail of oppression. My mother was white, working class woman. My father was patriarchal. They both had many great qualities, <laughs> um, but they had many struggles. And me and my brothers were the result of their coming together, a kind of biracial family together. So that's where we were. Um, and I found that I spent a lot of my time escaping into books and reading. And I would say that my first real friend um, was a librarian called Mrs. Veal. And I think I have a lot of thanks for her that I find myself being a therapist and a novelist too. Say some more about Mrs. Veal because you've written a really beautiful sort of ode to her in the Irish Times uh, last year. And yeah. she sounds like such an extraordinary figure. Well, we were friends for over 40 years. And wow. Yeah, she was um, somebody, somebody that put me on the path of literature. I, I think that she was my kind of literary therapist in many ways without my even knowing it. And um, she kind of grew me as, as a reader. And uh, we remained in contact when I went off to art college, when I was at uni. Um, and she unfortunately passed away. She didn't get to see my first book come out. But I knew, I know that she would have been incredibly proud had she had read it. I'm sure she would have. And so she 
sort of feeds into your path, doesn't she? Because you, so, so you sort of grew up in this really challenging environment and you describe that socially at school, obviously things aren't any easier really than they are at home. Um, but at some point you have to make a decision about leaving home and going to university. And so, so yeah. that kind of, I think, brings us to our path. Um, so what, what do you decide? So my love was for English literature. You know, I was, I was inhaling books at this point. They, they were constant companions. Um, Mrs. Veal was introducing me to, you know, the mighty James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison. Um, she was very keen for me to read um, writers of colour as well, so I could feel slightly more connected with some of the narratives. And I was undecided whether to follow the arts route or the English literature route. And I think today I'm going to journey with you to take the English literature route because I think if I had been less fearful, less afraid, less unsure of myself, that would have been the route that I would have taken. And when you say arts, you mean sort of fine arts and graphics and that sort of thing, right? And why did that feel safer? I think I felt that I could hide behind it more. Now, another artist might say to me, but that is the most exposing thing to create art and put yourself out there. But for me, writing down words, reading literature um, felt more exposing in a way. So I thought that I would go and study fine arts. And and I think I did hide for quite a while. I think I was pretty good at hiding. But I think I was still seeking in the hiding. I was still trying to make connections but I'd be really interested to just journey with you on this other detour and see what an English literature degree would have looked like for me. Okay, well, we're going to go there. I want to ask two questions. One is just where did you study? Um, And then the second is just so we can have a little bit of a sense of what came after Mm -hmm. and what did that sort of life of, as you describe it, hiding look like? Because you're obviously not in the arts and fine arts now. So I went to Lincoln Art College and first of all did a foundation course, which was specialising in fine art. And then I went on to university afterwards to Nottingham and did, um, it was a BA in um, kind of fine arts and graphics, which um, then led on to a career in in media. So I was um, an art director at Condé Nast at GQ magazine for a few years and after that, I was invited to relaunch Style Magazine with the Sunday Times. Got to travel a lot, got to really exercise some creativity. But my heart was still pulling me. I was still secretly writing. You know, I'd always secretly written. As a child, I was writing small poems and leaving them in chokes of hedgerows and in supermarkets and in telephone boxes. I think because I was trying to make connections I love that. Well, you would just plant little notes in sort of random places. I still do it sometimes. (laughs) Do you? Does anyone ever write back? Well, I don't, I I actually don't leave them to reply. They're just for people to find. So if people are having a difficult day, you know, or sometimes I might leave a poem by a favorite poet or somebody, but I, I think it was an attempt to make connection. Um, and I think, again, Mrs. Veal helped me to do that. You know, she encouraged me to read poetry. She was bringing me poetry to read. And the balm of those words was really wonderful. That's such a nice thing to do. All right. Well, let's go. And what we'll do is we'll dip back into your real life to check in on how things are comparing as we go. So you get to 
the point, presumably, I forget how it works in the UK, but you're 17 and you have to apply for university. Is that right? I think we do our A-levels to when, you know, um, uh, 18 and then and then 19, we apply to uni. Oh, fine. Okay. Yeah. You're not the most self-confident. You don't have this sort of, and presu- uh, you don't have the sort of family base that would encourage you to go for exactly what you want. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, something, well, let's say Mrs. Veal just has a little more, a little more oomph in this, in this um, scenario. <laughs> um, and you decide to apply for uh, a degree. Where do you go? Or where do you apply? I thought about this. The obvious answer maybe would be, you know, Oxford or Cambridge, but I think I would have liked being in London in a more kind of multicultural city. So I think I would be veering, you know, towards the South more possibly somewhere where there can be a sense of connection and longing and belonging. Yeah. Okay. Maybe London. I would be heading All right. To- let's choose. Let's choose a place in London just because it helps ground us a bit. So maybe we're going somewhere in an ideal world. We're going to maybe Goldsmiths, let's say, shall we? Love Goldsmiths. <laughs> Goldsmiths is perfect. So you, you apply for your degree in, in English literature at Goldsmiths. Yeah. You get in. I'm just, we're going to assume you get in. Well done. <laughs> Where are you staying? Are you in New Cross? What is this? This is like New Cross in the late 80s. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How fun. I don't mind where I'm staying. Give me a bed sit. Give me a, a, you know, a flat share with other students. I just want to be down there, you know, living, living that London life. All right. So you're in New Cross. You're living in some sort of flat situation with other people. And you're studying English literature. And this is presumably a bit daunting. Yeah. How does your first year go? I think the first year is about landing. I think it's about kind of gently ebbing myself into a different culture, an excitement though, a thrill of meeting new people, people with a common objective, which is to read literature and talk about it. You know, I've got a fantasy as we're talking of setting up a kind of student pamphlet or magazine I love the idea of kind of, again, we're back to collaboration, working with other students to to create a literary magazine. Is that what you were like, even though you were? Even though I was very shy, I was always very driven because the message from home was that if you work hard, one is rewarded. My, my mother and father were both incredibly hardworking people. So the message was that, you know, if we work hard, we'll be rewarded. And as we know, that isn't always the case. We're not always rewarded. We might be rewarded in a learning way or a growth way, but it depends how we value reward. And and possibly me and my father would have a difference of opinions about that. Mine would be about the self-growth and the involvement, but my, my father's take on that might be slightly different. More material gain, potentially. And, you know, he arrived in the late 60s with with nothing. There's a really cute story that he would tell me. He was incredibly resourceful, my father. And um, he arrived at the time of winkle pickers. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase. No. So it, it was a kind of scene, it was a fashion scene where the shoes were very pointed for men. And he arrived in the UK, um, you know, with very little money. And he would shape his shoes like winkle pickers using a kind of black gaffer tape. So it was incredibly fashion conscious and um, very stylish actually, but had, you know, had very few resources, but was very resourceful. So I think I learned, you know, those skills from him. 
in many ways. I think maybe it sounds like maybe you learned your style from him as well. My favorite thing is on your website, the fact that your jacket matches your book jacket. It's like the best thing I've ever seen. So, I mean... Miriam, I'd be lying if I said that was a coincidence. No, it was very evidently not, but it's so perfect. Okay. All right. So you're still very diligent. You're still working really hard. And one reason you said that you wanted to come to London is because you want to be somewhere really multicultural. Was Nottingham not? or Not really, no. No. Um, it was an improvement on Lincolnshire, which is where I was raised, certainly. Um, but it was still very difficult um, to meet my tribe in a way, in terms of a multicultural um, collaboration with people. So, yeah, I, I'm imagining in London it's more diverse. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of um, hovering above this magazine thinking, you know, let's set up a magazine for marginalised voices. Let's, let's give life to it. I'm calling it Rise. All right, you're the editor-in-chief of Rise within your first year. <laughs> you've got a you've got a group together who's working on it. Who are you meeting? Who are you hanging out with? Because you said that some of your dear friends came from Nottingham, but so we we're not going to have them anymore. Let's see if we meet you anybody here. So tell me about so what's your what's your team like and who who is it? Who are you who are you spending your time with? I'm I'm probably drawn to people that have also considered themselves an outsider. So you know, people that kind of um, live on the peripheries or um, have been banished or are considered a little bit weird, a little bit of a misfit, as I was. So I, I'm probably drawn to people similar um, at that stage. That's not to say we're not welcoming of people that do feel a sense of belonging, but probably that's what I'm being drawn to at that age, which also makes for great writing, I think, also. Absolutely. Okay. So this gets started. How are your classes? You've got that going on. That's a big part of your life, presumably a big part of your social life as well. Um, yeah. How are the classes going? I'd like to say, or I'd hope to think that um, I'm feeling present in them, that I'm really um, engaging with the material, connecting with the learning. You know, I've always loved learning, always loved school. So I'm probably you know, taking as much from these classes classes and these tutorials as much as possible and then taking the books home at night to read as well, which is what I used to do when I was a kid. You know, my, my family used to have a phrase that I was bringing home the plague. I just used to always be in my bedroom reading as a child and, and you know, family members would come round and say, where's Maxine? And, uh, you know, my mum and dad might say, oh, she, you know, she's upstairs reading, you know, like I had an illness or something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh I would continue to probably um doing that in terms of taking the books home, extending my reading, uh reading off the um reading list. And yeah, in terms of social life, are you are you just hanging out with people from the magazine, anyone in particular, any good friends? I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. Um I think it takes me a long time to feel loose with people. You know, I think as the child of an immigrant, we, we tend to arrive anywhere on the outside looking in. So it takes me a little while to warm up. And But I'm hoping that if I'm with a group of other people that have also had a struggle to belong, that we might connect um, a little more and, and a little more deeply as well. All right. 
So what the course is three years. Also, like how much London are you doing? Are you are you enjoying London? Yeah. What I are you doing? I'm, are you going out? I'm going to clubs. I think I'm um I take my introverted self over there. <laughs> see if I, <laughs> see if I can. Um and I would definitely be going to the galleries. I'd definitely be going to the art galleries and um hanging out with friends, going on walks. Um I wouldn't want to be spending too much time alone doing these things. I'd want to be doing them with, with other people, hopefully. You described, you know, your reason for not doing them in the first place as sort of based in feeling sort of fearful or um, not sort of willing to kind of own this thing that you loved so much. How is that feeling? I'm hoping that that's kind of inspiring some more confidence and that's probably feeding into the work. You know, it's, it's kind of thinking about, okay, what's going to come up during and after the degree in English literature. Um, and I'm hoping it's, it's offering inspiration for storytelling as well. And how, what, what form does that storytelling take? I mean, I'm really interested in, um, in being able to not to be too genre-based. So I love the idea of writing poetry and screenwriting and playwriting and novels and non-fiction. I think, you know, sometimes we, we're in danger of, um, of uh, kind of locking writers down to one thing. You know, you're a, a literary writer or you're a crime writer or you're a screen... I love the idea of the amalgamation of, liter- of, of literary talents. So... I, I would be hoping that this course is going to be inspiring me to be writing poetry, but also to be thinking about screenwriting and novels and nonfiction, and but ultimately writing for collective and social change. That would be at the heart, I think, of all the various writing. Well, let's we're going to follow that, and we're going to see if that comes up again. Um, one thing I think is interesting there is you and I have spoken separately about that idea of being locked down and how regularly not just writers, but people get sort of locked down into categories or feel they need to be locked down into categories. And you really feel that that is detrimental. I've always felt uncomfortable potentially in one place. And I think that again comes from a, you know, biracial existence and a transition in class also in education. I was the first person in my family to go to further education and uni. So um, I love the idea of standing in different spaces. Why? Because um, we've talked about this with, with other guests on the podcast. Too. Why? Do, why do you think we have that tendency? Why do you think we end up trying to put people into such individual boxes and not allowing them to stand in different spaces at the same time? I think it unsettles people. I think we like to have one idea of someone, and then we can lock it down, and we know what their next move is. And I think that if if we're a little more wild in our writing, you know, we unsettle the the status quo. You know, we unsettle the gatekeepers who want to pigeonhole us into one thing or another. And I think that people are far more comfortable saying, well, that person does that and that person does that and they write this and they... um, But for me personally, I much prefer the fluidity of, of crossing all genre. But I think it's to do with the unknown, potentially, and, and fear. Well, we've got you tackling fear all over London, so we'll come back to that. <laughs>
Um, okay, so 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 you're you're writing across genre, you're reading across genre, you have this sort of social campaigning and justice drive at the heart of what you're doing. Um, I got to ask about romance just because mm-hmm. we're there and yes, it's so. university and yeah, you know, this is a thing that happens. Any anything? Yeah. Um, I had a few partners when I was at uni. If we go back to my real life, okay, um, and. Uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, they were usually quite short-lived, but exciting. So I'm imagining that would not be dissimilar in our unlived life. Okay. There's no one in particular that stands out. Um, that comes later, I think. Okay, so you, you've, let's, shall we get you to the end of uni, then you finishing up mm. after all this. Where do you feel like going? What are your options? I like the idea of continuing writing uh, fiction, nonfiction, but also teaching as well. I love the the rigor that comes with teaching and the conversations, and like we're doing now, the kind of ideas that spring from from those kinds of meetings. So, um, and I've always been interested in in the aspect of creative writing. I think we can teach plot and beats and character development, but what about the daring? that's required to write our truth. And, you know, what's kind of required to be able to do that, I certainly think a network of supportive friends and and readers, um, like-minded people that are going to challenge us, um, but also rest, self-care, because, um, you know, it's, it's pretty lonely, this existing as a writer, and so... We need to have a lot of fun in there as well. We need to have um, people that believe in us and people that can challenge us. Um, Yeah, so creative writing, screenwriting. I'm kind of liking not settling on one thing at the moment. Is there, do we have a, also just to pause and just say, I, I love that and I love that you would incorporate that into your teaching of any sort of creative discipline because it's so true the entire lifestyle of a writer so requires a particular sort of internal and external support network sure in in total contrast to the idea of the solitary writer which you know obviously the writing happens in isolation but the rest of it really doesn't does it? it really doesn't and then the exposure of when you do you know and then but I think there is something that we, we would want to be daring and, and speak our truth and write our truth, but that, that takes a lot of core self to be able to do that and to actually, you know, that phrase where you say dance like no one's watching. I say like write like no one's reading. Mm. You know, you can start from that place, but it, it requires a lot of support. So I'm, I'm now thinking that I'm gathering, you know, the magazine team, you know, we're all kind of supporting one another in setting off these amazing projects. What's going to happen to the magazine when you graduate? Is it, are you, are you going to pass the baton? I like that. I love the idea of that kind of different voices coming in at, at the start of that year. And, and maybe we have conversations with those first years and tell them how it's been. And it's a bit about thinking about lineage, isn't it? And families and so forth as well. I love that idea of, you know, standing on the shoulders of our grandmothers and great grandmothers um, so maybe we pass it on to the first years and then we go off and do other projects and okay we'll leave it we'll leave it to them to, to rename it we're going to go out into the world we think you're going to teach to as a starter for 10 yeah yeah 
Sounds okay. sounds like a good place to start after leaving yeah. uni. Yeah. Okay. So you're gonna are you teaching other uni students? And I think I think you can teach, you know, prose and screenwriting in the same Yeah. Thing. We'll we'll allow you that. We'll allow you to have your feet in two camps. <laughs> I don't dare. I don't dare pigeonhole you now. So do you think you're teaching? Are you teaching at a uni? Are you teaching sort of ad hoc courses? I kind of like the idea of ad hoc courses, you know, for people that come and find um, a creative writing course. So it's not dictated to by a kind of university um, curriculum. Maybe we, we, we think about the kind of course we want to create together. You know, if it's memoir or maybe it's nonfiction or fiction. Let's let's throw it all in there, but let's support one another to do it as well. Okay, I like that. And this is when you're saying we. Is it does it feel like it's still sort of that group from the from the magazine, or just a, a handful of people who come together from they various places? Visit. They could be visiting lecturers, maybe. Okay, and then and you're still working on. Are you working on anything else? Anything else? Sort of your own projects. I'm probably working on um, I'm probably working on a novel at this point. Yeah, maybe a novel. When did you start on your first novel mm. that you wrote in the world? Yeah, in I was world? in my I was in my forties, so it was published when I was um, forty three, nearly forty four, and um, yeah. So this this detour that we're taking today i'm thinking that had i've gone the english literature route as opposed to the arts route we might have got published a little a little sooner um what's it about i think most things that i'm you know i'm interested in are relationships or identity belonging not belonging periphery living um so it's it's probably tied up with identity in some way and the posts in the nursery, you know, those kind of handed down messages that we get from generation to generation, what ghosts in the nursery are dictating or trying to dictate um, how we choose to live our life. And I'm You say what ghosts in the nursery are for people who don't know the phrase. Yeah, so the, the ghosts in the nursery are the messages, the kind of emotional inheritance that, that comes to us through our great-grandmothers or, you know, our grandmothers or mothers or our grandparents, and they're messages that um, attempt to have us repeating patterns potentially in our life that we have seen or we have witnessed or have even been unspoken about. And, and probably the novel is about looking at the impact of those ghosts in the nursery. Well, I mean, it's interesting to think about as well in the context of your own lived life, like how much of that is following you now. You've shed some of it, I think, already. Certainly in What Women Want, you know, we start with my ghosts in the nursery, which were these two very strong messages from my mother and father, which was, um, the first one was from my father, which was that I was too sensitive to live. Mm. And um, and I believe that that was the case for many years, that if I, you know, showed any weakness or if I cried or if I showed any emotion and I was too sensitive to live. And what, what does that mean? That if one is sensitive, you will implode, you will break down. So it was a very, very powerful message that was handed out from a very young age. And the other message was um, um, from my mother, who had you know, been handed down from her mother and from her grandmother, which was that I want does not get. 
So I've spoken to a lot of women about that phrase since, you know, and since writing the book, and it seems to be quite a familiar phrase, but it's often received from from mothers and, and the maternal side of our families. And so these two strong messages of I want does not get and um, you're too sensitive to live didn't leave an awful lot of room for desire. You know, I was terrified, actually. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, on our journey, Miriam, we're, we're going to completely desire and claim. And, um, yeah, yes. we're going to claim. Let's do lots of desiring. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's go forth and desire then. So um, uh, what do you want now? You're teaching. You've gone out of uni. Yeah. What do you want to do? I want a family. Okay. Yeah. And um, and in my real life, you know, I have my beautiful son who is now uh, he's eighteen years old. So uh, so I wouldn't change that. That would that would potentially remain. Um, but he comes a little later, maybe in my real life, because obviously we're in my twenties in our unlived life. Um, but did I'm, you in your real life? Did you want a family in your twenties? It just took a while, or. I think I was too preoccupied in my 20s. I think I was, I was sort of working hard, um, figuring out who I was. I was in deep analysis. Um, I was also a Samaritan for nearly 10 years. Mm. So um, I probably didn't have the space, and I was still trying to figure out who I was and what my ghosts in the nursery were about. So I think um, that felt around about the right kind of age. I was I was 31 when Dexter was born. And um, but maybe in our unlived life, you know, I have my children earlier, potentially. Um, well, let's think. Let's think about that. Because you're you're living in London, you're teaching creative writing, you're working on your novel, you're presumably not um too flush with cash in this moment because you're working as a teacher and you're working on your novel. Do you have roommates? We have to figure out what the conditions are for you to create a family in this yeah, universe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, community is really important, you know, the village to, to raise our children because um, so am I in New Cross still? I might move. I'm, I might move at this point, maybe. Maybe I want to change a scene. Maybe my desire is telling me Let's go and, and try somewhere else out. And uh, um, we, we might move to uh, London Fields maybe or, or more Hackney-based or, or, again, you know, sharing, sharing a flat maybe with other creative people. Okay. Should we put you, we'll put you in London Fields sharing okay. a flat with other creatives. That sounds great. I have no idea what London Fields was like in the 90s, but <laughs> whatever you get, get it now and hang on to it in the 90s. Wouldn't it be so great to go back to your 1990s self and tell them to buy a flat in London Fields? It'd be more affordable. That's what I was thinking. That would not be affordable now. This is a great bit about this exercise. You do you can't get rid of your hindsight. It's just there. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. So you find a little flat in London Fields. You're living with other people. So if, if we're going to say that wanting does get, like what mm. what's your sort of... Is that your sort of singular focus is basically set yourself up so that you can have a family or? It's kind of setting myself up so I'm not um, stretched to the point where creativity becomes so unreachable because, you know, it's very difficult, isn't it, to have that time to be able to write, you know, think about having a family. 
and and I did raise Dexter alone, you know, from the age of three. So I know what that what that's like, you know, the importance of community, the importance of the village, and all the other mums that we were all, we were all leaning into one another to support one another. So, um, so I think we we stay here for a while, maybe, and 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 try and figure out the writing a bit more. We're enjoying that. We're enjoying the communal living. Um, we're very much in touch with art still at this point. We're maybe doing some traveling as well when we can afford it. I'm quite interested in Istanbul as a country, you know, that kind of East meets West, that kind of Bosphorus Strait. When you go down that river, it's the one place on our planet where we can straddle both East and West. So that kind of resonates for me. Mm, of course. Yeah. All um, right. So you take it, we'll, we'll send you on a trip to Istanbul. And so I just want to ask too, just so that we know what we're looking for here. Um, mm. When did you meet Dexter's father? Yeah, so I met him when I was an art director at the Sunday Times. Okay. And he was the arts and film critic. And we met um, at the editor's house. He introduced us, actually. And um, and uh, we fell in love rather quickly. Yeah. And uh, Dexter shortly followed a year later. So, um, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> but you've raised him on your own since you're three, and I, I, I think, you know, it's completely right. The whole it takes a village, and I, you know, I have my daughter on my own half the time. I share custody with her father, and I right. couldn't do it without friends at all. I mean, you know, it's just impossible. And just for the kind of mental agility that we need you know to keep awake to (laughs) like like the like the you know just being able to speak to another adult on occasion is really important I think I kind of was in search of other wild mothers at that point you know I kind of called them wild mothers because they were kind of mothers that bucked the indoctrinations of what mothers should be you know there's tyrannous mothers need to be this or should and must be these things so I went in search of other mums that were uh, more free-spirited, might we say. And did you find some? Did you find some that sort of suited what you... Is I'm, there any way to encapsulate them or just that they were wild? Because I do... I, it is... It is... It's so problematic, I think, the expectations... I mean, this is not a new statement, but the expectations on mothers and the perfection required of mothers... Off the um, spot, Miriam. You know? Unbelievable. And I think... Um, I think also mothers become, you know, when we're not given the kind of existence in our own right, we become the kind of uh, often kind of punch bags for people's um, uh, discontents or society's um, political failings or emotional failings. And and we become these objects almost with, you know, that, that we can't exist in our own right. So I did go in search of other mothers that felt the same way. And I was very lucky to find two or three mums, two in particular, who I'm still very close friends with. And our children now are obviously, you know, 18 and have left home and and we've remained incredibly close. So that was a real gift. That's so important. Okay. Well, let's see who you, let's see who you find in your, in your unlived life. So, so we're still in your early twenties and you're in London fields. You've, you've chosen really well in property terms. Um, and um how long does this sort of state of being go where you're 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 writing and you're teaching 
maybe four or five years. Okay. Maybe, probably. And then maybe I get itchy feet a little bit and think something needs to change now. And, you know, maybe I try and get this novel published. Maybe I try and find an agent. Maybe um, I'm thinking about the possibility of my birth as a mother at this point. Um, I haven't had the child yet, so that might be whilst I've got energy, you know. <laughs> do you, I mean, do you, do you, um, do you want a partner in this scenario? Do you, do you decide you're going to do it on your own? You want a partner? I think it would, I, ideally, I think I would like to share that experience with a partner, but at all costs, I wouldn't want to settle if it meant that I wasn't going to be happy. Of course, you know, I would love to think that this partner will be with me and support the growth of our child. But I do my best not to settle, which is potentially something that my mother did. And I would be reenacting those ghosts. Okay. Well, as we're definitely staying away from the ghosts. So let's see, where might you meet said person? Are you still teaching? Well, wait, hang on. First though, let's go back. Do you find an agent? Yes, I'd like to think that I do find an agent. Okay. Maybe agent introduces me to... um... (laughs) They're a matchmaker and an agent. They're amazing. Because they don't have their feet just in one camp. They do multiple. Exactly. Wouldn't that be great? So, you know, maybe maybe they're a poet. Maybe they're they're a creative or an artist, um, you know drawn to that way of those com- those kinds of conversations um yeah okay with minds not not another therapist though I think yeah. well you're not a therapist so you could you could in theory therapy you could f- date a therapist if you want to yeah, I could actually yeah um no I'm gonna settle on a poet I think very nice yeah all right we're gonna see how the creative couple pans out so you you've got an agent and he or she is shopping around your book. Um, and and also they've introduced you to a to a nice poet man who is gonna <laughs> you guys are gonna stay up late talking about poetry. Um, this is delightful. And how does the book do? Does it find a publisher? Um I would hope it I would hope it does. Yes. Okay. Um so I'm already feeling when that's kind of happening, I'm always I'm already thinking. I maybe need to be doing something else alongside that. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking, do I need to be thinking about going back to teaching now? You know, it's the kind of dance between the different processes of writing. So, but but let's let's say that we're fortunate enough and we we, we get our novel published. Let's okay. See. So novel gets published. I mean, you can also go back to teaching. I mean, we're still, it's the 90s, so there's maybe still a little bit of money in publishing, but do you do both? Do you you work and write? Yeah, I think so. Because I haven't had a child at this point, have I? So I've got some some space. So I think writing the book and teaching maybe is a a beautiful sort of combination. Okay. And I want to figure out what the family setup is in a second, but how about I'm conscious of your sort of desire for social justice and to write about mm-hmm. social justice. And how is that figuring? Obviously it's it thematically figures into your novel, but is there anything else around that stuff going on? Any? Maybe there's something here. If we dare to go, um, 
you know, because I'm really interested in in the telling of women's stories, maybe now we're veering towards, okay, we've done the novel, we've done some teaching, I might now be feeling there needs to be a different platform for social justice. So is there some campaigning I'm doing potentially or screenwriting to give women voices in some way? Um, So I may be toying with that idea now. Well, why don't we, should we let that simmer for a second and we're going to bop back to the poet and then we'll kind of see where we come out. Um, how's things going with the poet? Really lovely. Is he, is he like good and supportive? He's not jealous of your publication because obviously. I really hope not. Otherwise I'll have to ditch him, right? <laughs> I know. Well, it, it, it will not stand, but let's, I, that's why I want to figure it out. Can he handle it? This is the big question with creative couples, right? Yeah, like, can you handle each other's success? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dexter's father was, was also a writer. He was a journalist. Um, so um, I'm hoping that, if I'm choosing the unlived life, I'm hoping that we um, feed one another. That that we're, um, we're he's writing poems, um, I'm writing books, and writing for social change. So I'm hoping we're inspiring one another. That envy is not playing a part. That we're there for each other's storytelling. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Right. Sound. Um, no, it sounds delightful. It sounds great. <laughs> I'm happy for you. Um, have, have you moved in together? Or do you, or do you still have your place in London Fields? Are you guys moving forward? Yeah, let's move in together. But maybe we have some separate floors as well, so the space. Right. I feel, and it feels feasible, like Hackney in the nineties. It feels like you could do it. You yeah. couldn't do it today. Yeah. It feels like you could do exactly. it. Exactly, we're coming together, but there can also be some space to do our creative pursuits as well. Which is such a nice. Um, model for a relationship I think mm-hmm. as opposed to that all-consuming yeah on, you know on top of each other all the time but I also think like probably as a parent and if you've been on your own for a really long time it's very difficult to imagine not having personal mm-hmm. space in a relationship so you know we've maybe got we're together we're, we've come together but maybe there's enough space you know we're in uh, London fields in the 90s so we can we can have a floor each should we need to You've got like a cool warehouse lofty situation oh. or something. Okay, cool. Um, uh, and what about children? Is that is that approaching? How long? We're not been there yet. The poet and I at this point. I think I think like a, I feel like you've been together a couple of years. Give it another year, maybe. We have okay. another year right. um, together on our own. Why don't we? Should we? Should we see the book get published first? Yeah. Should we see how it does? Yeah. Okay. That's- how does it do? How is it received? Um. I'd like to say that it's received well. I think one of the things that I struggle with sometimes is feeling misunderstood because I don't always fit into neat categories. So I'm hoping that this um, this book allows me to be more understood in a way. Yeah, so it does, I'm hoping pretty well. Let's Let's hope it does, yeah. And does that positive reception does that help with that sense of being misunderstood? So you as a, let's say 30 year old writer now, Hmm. do you feel a little bit more understood? Yeah. More connected. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's gorgeous. Okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the success of your debut novel. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) How's the poet success wise? Like, is he a successful poet? Really hoping so. I hope that he's happy and I hope that he's taking joy from his Mm. work 
And if he wasn't, we'd want to be sitting together and, and wondering about the importance of that or not. I think what's really important is that he's happy. And I love that, that idea that you guys could, if he wasn't, you could sit down and you could talk it through. And... Yeah, and I would do everything I could in my power to show love and support him with that. Okay. Yeah. You're such a good partner. <laughs> uh, okay, so, all right, are we ready to come back around to sort of social justice and campaigning? Yeah. Remember that you're feeling more connected and a little bit more heard in the world. Does it still feel like something that is needs to happen more uh, that, that needs a sort of concrete, more concrete outlet in the world. Um, no, I'm feeling pretty good. I think at this point now, yeah, sure. We're, we've got uh, the teaching, we've got the books out. I'm sort of feeling a little more connected. Um, let's imagine, you know, my friends from the magazine early days are still around. They're starting to talk about having families. We're thinking about the village together. So what kind of village? The kind of village that we all support one another with families and, oh. um, you know, that, that kind of warmth that comes with that. You know, if we, we, if we come from families that are not as available or not as, you know, not as present as we would like them to be or in different countries or so maybe we're having those kinds of conversations. You know, I often think in my practice now the, the kind of, quest for sort of civic life and love in the consulting room you know it takes on a kind of communal approach because I do believe that when you're working with a client you're not just working with that client you're working with that client so they can make better relationships and they can connect in their communities more so that feels really important yeah I think communities put the fires out on things Mm, that's such a great phrase I want to go back really quickly just so that we don't drop it before our session, our session before our chat ends. Um, just cause I wanted to check in on your most important connection, which is Mrs. Veal. Yeah. And I just want to know if you guys are still in touch in this unlived life. Cause in this, in this scenario, she gets to see your novel get published. Without a doubt. She's very much in my life. And one of the books that she gave me, Miriam, which was I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, it's a book that when I read completely destroyed me in all the best ways. It sort of um, was life-changing for me. And it's a book I still read once a year, every year. So what I, was What was, if you don't mind, what was it, what was so life-changing about it for you specifically? I sort of felt it was a coming-of-age story that that spoke to strength of character and of love of a literary world that could overcome racism and trauma, which in in some ways is not dissimilar to what to the journey that I've been on. So it, it really spoke to me. And so I think I would be writing to Miss Veal and she might be coming round to London Fields for supper. And uh, visiting. What did she think of the poet? Did she like the poet? Yeah, well, she she was a big um, poet herself and, and a lover of poetry. So I, I'm imagining they're bonding and drinking a glass of whiskey or two together. Okay, good. I'm really glad that she got to see your first book being published. So you're very cl- you're close still with your with your magazine friends. Um, they're starting to have children. Um, you and the poet are doing well. Your book's coming out. Are you working on something else? Have you started a second novel? Yeah, why not? 
Another novel, yeah. Or non-fiction, yeah, yeah. I'm working on something. Something. On something. Um, Presumably, probably, maybe it's a, it's a defies genre. Yes. <laughs> maybe it's non-fiction this time. Maybe I'm thinking the social change can be put into something more non-fiction based. Okay. Yeah. Any thoughts on what? Um, I'd like to look at mothers. Um, I'm always interested in mothers' relationships with mothers, mothers' relationships with themselves, the birth of a mother. Um, yeah, let, let's go on. All right, so you start working on that. Um, and then now are you thinking, where are we now in your readiness for for babies? Yeah, well, Miss Veal's <laughs> met the poet, so, you know, we get the go-ahead, Yeah. Actually, I mean, one thing that that we haven't talked about at all is your actual parents. Are they how involved are they in your life? I certainly would have liked my mother to be more involved, um, but my father returned to Hong Kong. So, um, but I think I probably would have liked my mother to be more involved. But I don't know how possible that might have been. Mm. So, you know, I found mothers in other places potentially. Um, uh, be it through friendships and mentors and clinical supervisors, therapists, you know, we find maternals in, in many places, don't we, Miss Veal, to some degree. Um, so I think let's keep it with our community. So then, yes, do you, do you two try for a child? Yeah, let's, let's try for the, let's try for the child. Let's try for the child. <laughs> And, and how does that, well, I don't want to say, how does that go? Um, okay. And it's, you know, it's, it's beautiful and terrifying and exhausting and exhilarating and all those, uh, and everything in between. So yeah. Yeah. As it okay. should be with motherhood, I imagine. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking that poet is very, very involved, very hands-on with, with baby as well. And how does, and we're now, I mean, I think we're saying you're sort of in your early 30s now. Yeah. Sort of feels, no, feels about right. So we're in the early 2000s also. Yeah. Um, Which is when my son was actually born, 2004. Ah. Yeah, so we've kind of aligned there, haven't we? And how does parenthood feel like in that moment? It's amazing. But I think that because of some of the ghosts in the nursery, um, my mothering is very, very protective. So my kind of mothering has teeth. And I think that um, it, it's a bit like this notion of the birth of a mother, you know, one has to learn on the job. There's no prerequisite, you know, and especially if we've had um, challenging relationships with our own parents, as I did. So I guess it's confusing at times and overwhelming, but it's a, it's a beautiful thing too. Mm. Has that sort of been your parenting in real life as well? That's how you've missed teeth. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very protective. You know, very early days was very protective and, you know, I kind of used to envy mothers that felt they had this immediate bond, you know, when the baby was lowered to their chest and they felt this overwhelming, unconditional love. Mine was one of terror and fear. You know, how mm. was I ever going to be this mother that that could match up to society's view of me? You know, that's why I had to kind of 
you know, in a way have that kind of self-sovereignty in that I would try and do mothering my way, not the way that society told me I ought to be doing it or the way that my mum or, you know, my dad might have said that I ought to be doing it. I had to try and find to, to do it my way. So I made that a bit of a mission, really. And how did you find your way? Because I think that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that people sort of say, right, is that yeah. you've got to find your own path and you've got to find your own style. It's quite difficult to actually yeah, do. It really is, really is. And I, I think I still am finding it. You know, 18 years later is by no means any hard and fast answers to that. I think with each stage of motherhood comes, you know, other complications. You know, currently I'm living in the empty nest with my son having left home now to attend art college. And I felt my heart give way when he left. And But I think my way is that I try not to listen to the kind of binary thinking about motherhood or the, you know, they're, they're either good or bad or they're, there's a lot of judgment around mothers and the expectations they're either idealized or, you know, how can we ever live up to this notion of, of motherhood that society places on us? And I think we have to make some mistakes. I think we have to bond with other mothers and talk about the struggles of motherhood. If there's any shame, I think, again, you know, community puts the fire out on shame. If we can start and talk about our struggles, how we don't want to be a mum today, it's really tough, I'm really exhausted. I'm feeling really vulnerable. I'm feeling lonely. So <clears throat> I think those conversations are so important for mothers. Agreed. Yeah. Especially, I think, especially all of the stuff around shame and talking. Yeah. So it's 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 really really prohibitive, isn't it? it really is. Yeah. Um, and very lonely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, but you have a beautiful community around you <laughs> in London Fields and around. Um, you're raising your child. Um, are you able to write or you just pause the writing while you're in those early stages? I think I'm, I'm trying to be as present as possible, but I'm also feeling that I want to write because, you know, writing for me is very much a balm and it's a, it's a nourishment for me personally. It might not be huge passages, but it might just be, words or thoughts or feelings that are coming up or something. So I'm still writing for sure. Uh, I don't, I'm not very happy when I'm not writing. How do you make time for writing now with your practice and everything else? I, I don't really feel I've ever had the luxury of, to wait for the literary muse to arrive. You know, I've had mm. to carve out time. So when I was raising my son, you know, I was up at 5, 5.30 and committing to two hours of writing before he woke up and before I did the school run. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And it might sound quite brutal in many ways, but for me, it offered a balm. It offered time to think clearly and companionship, mm. the reading, you know, of the books and of the writing of the words. I found it incredibly useful to begin the day that way. But, but now, you know, my son's left home, I've got a lot more time on my hands. And in my practice, I work three days a week, the rest of the time is, is, is spent on writing. So I'm in a really great place with it currently. I have to um, just ask you before we end, just, um, we've gotten you to a place where 
you've got a delightful poet partner. You've got a delightful child. You're writing. Your property value is through the roof at this point. Um, how does that feel? Is there anything else that you feel like we'd like to do to sort of round off your unlived life here? That feels pretty good. That feels pretty good. Um, yeah, I'm very happy. Thank you. <laughs> and is there, is there, before we end, is there anything that you would like to take from your unlived life into your current life? And that can be something emotional or it can be something mm, what a lovely tangible. You don't have to also. Yeah, no, I, well, first of all, what I will take is the conversation that you and I have had because that's been delightful. Oh. And, um, and I think what I'm taking is, is to keep desiring, you know, to keep awake. Don't, I'll, I'll try and attempt to not become docile with that desire. I think I'm, uh, I'm taking, I'm taking the keeping on writing and the poet with me. Amazing. Okay, well, I'm going to check back in with you in a year. and I want to know if you found a poet. <laughs> I'm telling you, I believe very firmly in the power of the unlived life. I really think like magic comes out of it. Let's be in touch, Marianne. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maxine. An absolute pleasure, Marianne. Thank you. Maxine began her path by saying that she'd felt the course of study she followed in her real life was one that allowed her to stay hidden, that studying English literature would have been more exposing and therefore scarier. It made me think about something else that was hidden, but also really beautiful for Maxine. Those little notes she would leave hiding in hedgerows for people to find. I loved those. She said it was her way of seeking connection, especially when that connection wasn't always forthcoming at home. I think it was interesting how her goal with those notes wasn't to receive anything back, how for her she didn't need reciprocation or even acknowledgement to feel connected. What an amazing way to live. What I do think is nice about her unlived life is that we saw lots of ways in which that connection did come back around. The way her magazine team supported each other through motherhood, the way she and her poet really looked after each other in such a sweet way. And my personal favorite, the way that her beloved librarian, Mrs. Veal, was there to witness and to celebrate the publication of her first novel. I have no doubt that Maxine enjoys all kinds of connection, reciprocal and otherwise, in her real life. But it was fabulous to watch it play out right there in the open for everyone to see. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.